At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, March the 16th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Very happy to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand on our podcast, which is available, among other places, at GuyBensonShow.com. We're live from New York in the worldwide headquarters of Fox News. Very happy to be here. Gutfeld was fun last night. I'll be joining Kennedy tonight, Fox Business, in the 7 p.m. hour. So you can uh, check your listings or set your DVRs. Hope to see you over with Kennedy this evening. I will remind you, as I just did, that our website here on the radio side, GuyBensonShow.com, all of our content available there through the podcast or posts that we put up there, the full Bill Barr interview, for example, that we conducted on Monday, that is your best resource for your needs related to this program. Speaking of this program, here's what we've got on tap on this Wednesday. It is Sandra Smith who will uh, join us first right here in studio across from me in New York. She'll be here in person talking about inflation, the economy, some news from the Fed today. We'll get to all of that with Sandra. Also in studio in our next hour, Bill Hemmer, our colleague at Fox News, talking Ukraine, talking about the difficult week we've had here at Fox News. And I'm sure that Bill will have lots of interesting thoughts at the top of the next hour. He will be, as I mentioned, right here with me in studio. Coming up also in that middle hour, the 4 o'clock hour, U.S. Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina. He's on the Armed Services Committee. He's on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Busy places to be these days. We will talk to him and, of course, ask about the news of the day pertaining to the work that he's doing in the U.S. Senate. And also our final guest in our final hour, 5 p.m. hour, the happy hour, Bill Malugin, latest on the border. We just gave you a hint the other day of the data that came in on February, the official border numbers from last month. They are dreadful. When you dig deeper, in fact, the deeper you dig, the worse they look. So we will go through those with Malugin and also get some of his very latest reporting from the border. That is coming up on the show today. As we get going, Fox News alert. And this is an update on what we've been following all week involving the attack that hit some of our team here at Fox News in Ukraine. And when we've brought you news so far this week on this front, it has been bad news. Losing a team member, losing an outside producer that we had hired on as a consultant, valued members of the Fox News family who succumbed to their injuries and died after 
being hit. Their vehicle was struck by incoming fire outside of Kiev. We also knew, and this was the first indication that we had that something had gone terribly wrong, Benjamin Hall, who is our on-air colleague here, a foreign correspondent, he was wounded. He was injured. We did not know the extent of those injuries. We still don't exactly know what happened, but we do have an update, and that is the alert that I wanted to bring you, and it is finally some better news, which by no means negates the incredibly awful, gut-wrenching tragedy that we've already experienced. But if you're looking for a silver lining, here it is. This was an email sent out to the Fox News team earlier today from the CEO at Fox News, Suzanne Scott. Good morning, she writes. We have an update on our colleague Benjamin Hall, who was seriously injured while reporting outside of Kiev on Monday. He is now safe and out of Ukraine. Ben is alert and in good spirits. He is being treated with the best possible care in the world, and we are in close contact with his wife and family. Please continue to keep him in your prayers. Thank you, Suzanne. So having no special information beyond what I literally just read to you, it sounds like Ben has survived. It sounds like he will, prayers up, be okay. The degree to which he was wounded, we don't know. But being safely spirited out of that war zone, out of Ukraine, getting some of the best treatment available in the world, being awake, alert, in good spirits, those, of course, are very encouraging developments. And we will continue to pray for Ben and for his family and, of course, for the families of those who didn't make it. But it's been so much bad news related to this. I I wanted to bring you that. And it certainly lifted my spirits earlier. I mentioned some of the colleagues that we lost on special report last night. Jennifer Griffin gave an update from the Pentagon. Very professional, as always. Lots of important information packed into her report. And at the very end of that report, near the very start of the show, I was actually in the makeup chair downstairs here in New York getting ready for Gutfeld. And I was watching. I wanted to see the coverage. Brett had done a tribute to people who had died, a little package. It was very well done. Then he went to Jennifer Griffin. It was back to the news, but she had something that she wanted to add. And again, she is a pro's pro. She is tough as nails, but you will hear she was fighting back tears on special report last evening. This was extremely moving. I think for anyone who was watching, cut 23. A word about our colleagues, Pierre, Sasha, and Ben Hall tonight. The loss and pain we feel is enormous, but if ever there were a time that the world needed journalists, reporters risking their lives to tell these stories, to tell the truth, it's now. Without a free press, the autocrats win. We will redouble our efforts to honor these colleagues and all reporters in harm's way tonight. And as she choked up, Brett Bayer, the anchor, said, your feelings are our feelings, affirming those emotions. And just sitting there in hair and makeup, my eyes sort of missed it over. That was a really powerful moment. It has been a hard week here at Fox News. One more point on this. There are some people, I'd say there are many people out there who detest Fox News for all sorts of reasons. A lot of them very stupid and tribal. Some of them 
are so ghoulish that they've taken this opportunity, the occasion of Fox News journalists being killed in a war zone, covering a conflict, telling the truth on the ground. They have exploited that moment, this moment, to attack the network broadly, to impugn all of us, to settle certain individual scores, to go after specific on-air people who have nothing to do with the news operation in Ukraine whatsoever. It is a very gross thing. And there were people sort of spreading conspiracy theories. Oh, Fox is covering up the young woman's death because they don't care about, I mean, it's simply untrue. Trey Yingst has been fact-checking. It's actually quite pathetic that anyone needs to fact-check scurrilous, nasty slanders of the network in days like this, in a week like this, but that has been necessary. And I feel like when someone has died, more than someone, two people have died, another correspondent in some sort of serious condition, if your gut instinct, if that moment, your impulse is telling you, you know what, let me go out publicly and attack their employer and them by association. I think you need to really reevaluate your life, your morality, your decisions. And I'm sure people do this with great sort of indignant smugness that they're really the good person in all of this. I would submit that they should reconsider that because it's about as gross and grim as it gets. Meanwhile, President Zelensky addressed Congress this morning. We were under the impression that it was, and we had actually promoted it as 9 a.m. today, Fox News coverage. That was all true. We thought it was going to be in the House chamber because that's where joint addresses always take place. We've also seen Zelensky addressing the U.K. Parliament, the Canadian Parliament. We've seen those videos. That was done in their legislative chambers. For whatever reason, that didn't happen today. There was a joint session. It was in some large auditorium in D.C. with a giant screen. It was not in the House of Representatives. It was extremely powerful. There was an opening video that Zelensky and his team had developed and produced Sort of a montage with dramatic music juxtaposing a free, happy Ukraine with a war-torn, bombed-out, suffering Ukraine under this Russian oppression and bombardment. And some of it was extremely graphic. Children, pregnant women, people bleeding, dying, weeping. It was almost unbearable to watch, I have to say. I forced myself to not look away because it's real. And some people said, well, that's Ukrainian propaganda. Okay. In a war, propaganda happens. There's an information war that also accompanies a military war. The reason that the Ukrainians are crushing the Russians on the information front and actually handling them quite well on the military front too, but the the reason that they're winning the PR war is because of the facts on the ground. This is not Ukrainian spin or Ukrainian propaganda made out of whole cloth to tear at heartstrings and pull at heartstrings based on nothing. It's based on the bitter, horrific reality that they're facing. 
and putting that into a two-plus-minute montage, like a sort of a video display, was gutting to watch. That's what he opened with. Then he said that this is Ukraine's version of 9-11 in Pearl Harbor. You'll remember that we played you recently some of his speech to the U.K. Parliament where he was channeling Winston Churchill and not quite quoting Churchill about fighting the Nazis, but very similar language. Here he was modulating a little bit, changing his messaging specifically and tailoring it to the United States. What happened to your country on Pearl Harbor Day? What happened to your country on 9-11? This is that for our country. And he asked very adamantly for the United States Congress to apply more pressure to the Russians. Here was part of what he said in Cut 20 through a translator. Ladies and gentlemen, members of Congress, please take the lead. If you have companies in your districts who um, finance the Russian military machine leaving business in Russia, you should put pressure. I'm asking to make sure that the Russians do not receive a single penny that they use to destroy people in Ukraine. The destruction of our country, the destruction of Europe. At one point, he shifted over into English, Zelensky did, and addressed President Biden directly, cut 21. At the leader of my niche, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader And he concluded with this message to Congress, also in English, cut 22. Peace in your country doesn't depend anymore only on you and your people. It depends on those next to you, on those who are strong. Strong doesn't mean big. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world for human rights, for freedom, for the right to live decently and to die when your time comes and not when it's wanted by someone else, by your neighbor. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine. We are fighting for the values of Europe and the world. And to die when your time comes. That resonated through that room. Uncommon Valor, uncommon bravery, uncommon clarity from Zelensky. He asked for a no-fly zone. He's not going to get that from the United States or NATO, at least under these circumstances, barring something huge. He's not going to get that. He did need additional help, not just punishing the Russians economically, but militarily as well. He needs more assistance, military assistance. Ask and you shall receive. President Biden responding just a short while later with a new list of assistance that is coming to the Ukrainians. We will get to that, what it entails, plus an interesting answer to a question for Biden about Putin. That audio coming up. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. So in Ukraine, there are reports of a Ukrainian counteroffensive to try to push the Russians further back away from Kiev and other important cities. In Mariupol in the south, Russian troops have taken hundreds of hostages at a hospital. Right, these people say they're peacekeepers. What a crock. And you heard some of the statements from President Zelensky talking to Congress earlier, asking for more help. President Biden just really minutes later said more help is coming and it comes in the form of nearly a billion dollars in military aid cut 27 this new package on its own is going to provide unprecedented assistance to ukraine it includes 800 anti-aircraft systems to make sure the ukrainian military can continue to can continue to stop the planes and helicopters that have been attacking their people and to defend their ukrainian airspace and at the request of President Zelensky, we have identified and are helping Ukraine acquire additional longer-range anti-aircraft systems and the munitions for those systems. Our new assistance package also includes 9,000 anti-armor systems. These are portable, high-accuracy high high shoulder-mounted missiles that Ukrainian forces have been using with great effect to destroy invading tanks and armored vehicles. And I heard and read millions of bullets as well. I'm for all of that. That's good. I applaud the president and the Biden administration. There are plenty of things to criticize in their approach to this and almost everything else. I support this. What I'm trying to figure out is, okay, we're giving them various weapons, sophisticated weapons, to blow up Russian tanks, which they've been doing quite successfully, and to blow Russian airplanes and helicopters out of the sky, which they've also done very successfully. Thousands of Russians, estimates around 8,000 Russian soldiers have died already. A lot of that with material and armaments and weaponry that we have provided. Why is it that having done all of that, which I'm glad we have and we should do more of it, why can't we help them get fighter jets? Why would that be more of an escalation or a provocation? That is a piece of this that I do not understand. Maybe we'll ask Senator Tillis from the Armed Services Committee about it later when he joins us. Last thing, at the White House earlier, Jackie Heinrich, our colleague at Fox, asked the president if, based on everything he's seen, Vladimir Putin should be called a war criminal. Initially, he said no, Heinrich reports, but then he came back and clarified, and he said, quote, he, meaning Putin, is a war criminal. That's the latest moments ago from the president of the United States about Vladimir Putin. It's the Guy Benson Show. Sandra Smith is here next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the show, 
I'm Guy Benson, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. Very happy to welcome in studio our colleague Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports with John Roberts every weekday, 1 to 3 Eastern on Fox News Channel. She also has a major business reporting background, and that's what we will mostly focus on here. Sandra, it's great to see you. Thank you, Guy. Good to, good to be here. I just Thanks want to me. acknowledge, and we were talking about it during the break, it has been... Not an easy week here, and some of this tough news for the Fox News family has broken during your hours, and we don't have to dwell on it, but I, it's something that it's just as human beings we're all really feeling these last few days. Our hearts break for these journalists. Um, they're making the ones who have made great sacrifice, the ones who have lost their lives trying to uh, tell the story of these people, these fighters on the ground there in Ukraine. Uh, trying to defend their country. Our heart breaks every hour. A guy just came off the air uh, just now on the Fox News channel covering uh, a Russian uh, attack of a theater on the ground in Ukraine uh, where apparently hundreds of Ukrainian civilians had been hiding out for weeks, uh, avoiding uh, bombs. It was sort of a makeshift bomb shelter. Uh, It was just hit. And we have very little reporting on it so far as far as how many casualties, if any, Mm. uh, and how many uh, were actually in that theater. It just seems like the news continues to get worse by the hour. The U.S. announcing the aid today. Uh, We hope this aids them in this fight. Uh, We hope they're getting what they need to continue on because it is brutal on the ground there right now. Mm. And meanwhile, at home, it is in a different way Mm -hmm. getting – Difficult out there for American families. I mean, they're seeing it at the pump. They're seeing it in the price of everything basically going up. We saw a key inflation metric this week into the double digits now in the increase on the production side. Consumer sentiment is at an 11-year low. And now the Fed has sprung into action today. What did they do? What does that telegraph to you? So they raised rates. It was the first rate hike that they have implemented um, in quite some time. I mean, you're talking three three years, but it was a quarter – Point rate hike. Larry Kudlow was just on my show saying this is not enough. They needed to do a half point or a full point because in order to get inflation under control, it's going to take a whole lot more. Obviously, guy, the other end of that is the Fed has to be sensitive to running our economy into a recession because that could certainly happen if they tighten too quickly or raise those interest rates too quickly. That is the very delicate balance that the Federal Reserve uh, has in front of them right now. Uh, so his take was too little too late on the part of Larry Kudlow. Larry Summers, of a, a formerly of a Democratic administration, he is putting out statements. He's, you know, he wrote a piece this morning. He's worried about stagflation. He's worried about the United States basically entering a, a, a period of very little or no economic growth can, whatsoever. Can you explain and define for our younger listeners – myself included, stagflation, because this country, thank God, hasn't seen that in mm-hmm. decades. So it's like, oh, was that a Carter thing? Well, yeah, but but it's it, it can come back. What is stagflation? Very easy. It, it's a very simple definition. It is a period of of very little growth, if no growth at all. And, we, and that's realistic right now. Let me point to two. Amid inflation. Amid inflation, right, so but, let, but let me but let me use that to paint the picture. Uh, the Biden administration likes to tout that wages have been going up. That is fact. That's great. We've been looking for that to happen for quite some time. 
it, they're up single digits. I just think just over 5% growth, right? Uh, while at the same time, you've now got double-digit inflation growth. So you got wages going up, but you have inflation going up even farther. What happens is all those increases in wages on, from those hardworking Americans and their paychecks going up is getting eaten up by inflation. And that is a horrific thing. And let me just tell you, because this isn't just once, twice, three times we've had multiple studies now – um, that that poll American families and American workers, 65% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck right now. Take that in for a moment. Two-thirds. When you've got gas prices spiking, and by the way, you can tie Ukraine into all of this because you've got a squeeze on the global oil market. That's running up gas prices. You still got oil near $100 a barrel. Gas prices, the national average, over $4.00. That's pain on the American consumer. That's pain for American companies who then pass that down to the consumer. So sadly, and I pushed Larry Kudlow on this because he's usually an optimist and you can find, he can find some, some bright spots and everything. It's a lot of bad news out there when it comes to the American economy. It does not look good. And when the Federal Reserve just held their news conference after the quarter point rate hike, basically the takeaway is – They're forecasting slower growth for all of 2022 and inflation to go even higher. Uh, That is direct pain on the American consumer. Are there going to be more rate hikes at this point? Because it's like a little small one. I mean, there could be a whole series of these. I believe that they're promising one at every future meeting for the rest of the year. So, yes. So, but if they're doing quarter point. buckle up. Right. right. Maybe. Um, I mean, Larry Kudlow said it's too little too late, you know, so maybe they see the gradual increase in the, in the interest rates, the best way to combat possible recession. Um, but I will tell you, Kudlow just predicted recession on my show. Um, so it's not, and he is, as you said, Mr. Positivity much of the time on economic matters. I don't think it's un- unrealistic at this point, considering producer prices. We just got the read on that. Okay. Up 10% year over year. Um, we've got the core PPI gains. The producer prices are going up, up 6.6% year over year. These are tangible things people feel. And guy, you, you know, you, when you look at the political side of things, as we are in a midterm election year, you look at the polling on, on, on the issues the American people face today. Uh, it is inflation number one, mm-hmm. and it has been for quite some time because these are things that we experience every day when we go to the grocery store or we go to fill up our gas Well, tank. there's uh, two or three polls out in the last few days on the issue of inflation, which is top of mind for voters. The president's disapproval rating on that specific issue is 70 percent, seven zero. Absolutely. And that's probably why they're going with all this, you know, Putin price hike talking point or whatever. There's some truth to it, but it is not. Uh, I would say a fair characterization of the breadth of the problem, the various causes of the problem, and it would seem that the American electorate understands that. Just one other thing, Sandra, going back to what you mentioned about Larry Summers, stagflation is a term that you never want to hear Mm -hmm. as a real possibility. Mm -hmm. Summers is saying he is very worried about it. The reason that that concerns me more than just some average person Mm -hmm. raising that on TV somewhere is – He's been right on some stuff recently in a way that the administration ignored mm-hmm. and dismissed, right? He was early on the inflation clarion call bandwagon saying, watch out, red flags, oh, inflation. He was way early and on they're it. like, oh, no, you know, never mind that. It's going to be transitory. He was right. So if this is the next thing that he's talking about, at the very least, we need to take that seriously. All right. So here's his prediction. 
Uh, and by the way, his entire piece in the Washington Post is a slam on the Federal Reserve for getting this wrong from the beginning. Do you remember transitory? Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Larry Summers was the one of the first to call out the Fed transitory. What are you talking about? You know, American consumers have been suffering from inflation long enough to know this is not transitory. And then they retired that word. He is saying, quote, um, that the Federal Reserve needs to take far stronger action to fight inflation. The Fed's current policy trajectory is likely to lead to stagflation with average unemployment and inflation both averaging over 5% over the next few years. Years. That is a big deal and Ugh. ultimately to a major recession. And I would say that's pretty much in line with what Kudlow just estimated on or predicted on my So show. I mean he's so he's using the S word stagflation mm-hmm. and the R word recession. Yes. Uh, he said that he thought inflation would stay uh, – this was th- the same time last year he said in the post that the Fed thought inflation would stay around 2%. They got that wrong as well. So are they going to get this wrong, a quarter-point rate hike they did today? Kudlow said it should have been you know, more like a half or a full point. Time will tell. Um, to answer your initial question, though, I just had to make sure that I was right on this. I believe it's going to be – they implied today seven rate hikes this year. Mm. Okay, so and they increased their. By the way, can I just can I point out for the audience at home because most of you are listening on the radio or on the podcast. Some of you are watching live on Fox Nation. More than any other guest that we have, when we are here with Sandra Smith, she has done her homework. She has an array of papers in front of her where she's got notes and like you've got every stat at your fingertips, which is really impressive and very helpful. But it's important because. Precision on this stuff matters. Yeah. We don't want to be, you know, ringing bells vaguely. Yeah. These are specifics, and these are warning signs that are out there. So that's what's happening here at home. The Russian economy, meanwhile, mm-hmm. is just in Decimated. total shambles. Yeah. The initial conversation was the sanctions coming in from the West, the United States and elsewhere, they're going to be really biting, really painful. But they would take a little while to start to – to bite as hard as they need to, it seems like they're biting pretty hard over there, right? Uh, the sanctions bit into yeah. the Russian economy very hard. Uh, they've crumbled. They haven't even been able to reopen their stock market for fear it would just go to zero, uh, which it has almost. Um, it is their, their currency is completely devalued. Um, what happens next is the big question. Are we going to make up for the squeeze in the global oil market? Are we going to drill more oil? Are we going to produce more oil to help out those European countries that were dependent on uh, and some still are dependent on Russia for that, those energy needs? And how does China step in here? Because right now China sees Russian oil on sale. They will happily buy it. And then there's now this discussion about Saudi Arabian oil and the, the Chinese are talking about – Well, there's about, a report that Biden might be going to Saudi Arabia. Could. He, they haven't announced it formally. Um, he was just pressed a second ago. I was watching a, a, a video out of the White House just a moment ago uh, where I, I think you saw this. President Biden did just tell our Jackie Heinrich that he does believe indeed yep. that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. Um, so I, I think there's a big question about how these other countries step in here. No, the Saudi Arabia thing I think was interesting was China is now saying that it will use their, their currency to buy oil from Saudi Arabia directly rather than converting to U.S. dollars for those purchases. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really interesting, and that could significantly devalue our currency, something to watch. Um, That might be one of the reasons why Biden might be going over there. But that also feeds into the narrative that a lot of critics of the administration are saying 
Why should we be sending the president to a place like Saudi Arabia? Why should we be sending top diplomats to Venezuela trying to, you know, basically kiss and make up to some extent so we can buy their oil because of what's happening? We have a lot of fuel in the ground here. Amen. And the administration sort of pretending that, oh, yeah, it's here and the, the oil companies can go get it if they want to. They're just choosing not to. That doesn't strike me as a serious response to this. That right? is, that, those are just optics. This is the reality of the situation. And Newt Gingrich sort of painted this picture yesterday. And it stuck in my head. Imagine that. We are now turning for our energy needs in an absence of being able to buy the Russian oil, which we've banned those purchases. And now we're, we're talking about tapping on Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela and saying, we need help from you. We need your resources rather than turning internally in our own country and and getting it from Texas and Oklahoma and South Dakota. It'd be one thing if we didn't have those resources and we had no choice but to find them elsewhere. But we do have those resources and we are the people in charge making it a point not to maximize them, campaigning on in not doing fact, it. In fact, the president's demonizing the oil and gas industry as we speak. He I know. sent out a tweet this morning. Um, he sent out a tweet this morning showing how ga- oil prices went up, gas prices went up. Now oil prices have come down from their highs, but yet gas prices aren't coming down as fast. And he's essentially uh, claiming that they are colluding to run prices up higher for the American consumer. No, Without evidence, that is a very strong claim and one that should be backed up if you're no, going to make it's it. No, it's just – it's blame casting. It's deflection. Uh, it's like, oh, come explain yourself, big oil. This is Putin and big oil. That's the story that they want to tell the American people because his approval rating on inflation is at 70. Disapproval is at 70. Yeah, it's I don't... the American Petroleum Institute. I had a conversation with it last week, and they represent all these big oil and gas companies and, and groups. And they said essentially, you know what? We're not. This isn't even a big ask. Just use slightly friendlier rhetoric when it comes to the oil and gas industry, so that we don't think you're out to just completely annihilate and destroy us. They can, and maybe they would consider taking on the risk of getting into those nine thousand leases that they'd like to continue to tout. And I think that's a really important point. Did you see the House Progressive Caucus? I believe today called on Biden to go further in combating fossil fuels and going into the green future or whatever. It's like. Read the room a little, guys. Like, you know, of all the moments to say, let's let's do less energy production in this country. How are you going to power the electricity, by the way, for those for those EVs? Where are you going to buy the lithium batteries? Primarily China Mm. and other outside countries. Um, Take that into consideration for a second. No, it's it's a it's a tough environment out there. And by the way, they're brazen with their 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 killing of the fossil fuel industry. Brian Deese, economic advisor to the president, said on the record the other day, RNC research clipped it and played it over and over. The goal for this administration is to bring fossil fuel use to zero, he said. Yeah. Imagine that. Not the moment for that, and but they're committed to it. The thing is they are committed to it ideologically, and therefore that's why you get these sort of squirrel over here, shiny object over here, big oil, uh, you know, the excuses, Putin, because ultimately they know that their their ideological political project is at odds with the goals of the American people, certainly right now in this time of pain, but they can't really admit it without doing more political damage to themselves. So you're getting this at song and dance. At some point, the American people will ask, at what price? At what mm-hmm. price are they going to continue down that path? And I don't just mean pain at the pump. I mean the geopolitical risk, that price yeah. we are now witnessing. National security issue on top, of, on top of the inflation concerns and the, the pain for these families. Sandra Smith, uh, not our happiest conversation we've ever had, but a very important one. 
Uh, you are on the air every day, one to three, with John Roberts. America reports on. Fox I'm going to go News join Channel. the five tonight as well. So oh wow! Wish busy. me luck. <laughs> busy, busy, Sandra Smith, making some time for us today. Really appreciate. Happy it. to be here. Thanks, guy. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. So last evening, there was a Senate resolution that passed 57 to 40. It was introduced by Senator Rand Paul, which would end the federal mask mandate on airplanes, trains, subways, and other modes of public transportation where there's federal jurisdiction. 57 to 40. So that's a pretty big vote. All the Republicans voted yes, except for Mitt Romney. I saw his staff said that he believed that it shouldn't be up to politicians to make these decisions and it should be public health officials. But with all due respect, and you all know I I like and respect Mitt Romney a lot, uh, hard disagree on this one with Mitt. I think we have ceded way too much authority to bureaucrats who are unaccountable like Dr. Fauci. And part of being a political leader is to say when that has gone too far and to help with a course correction. So I think Romney's wrong on this one. All the other Republicans are right. And there were a handful of Democrats, almost all of them vulnerable and up this year for reelection, voted with the Republicans. So it was a big bipartisan vote because you had election year Democrats saying in purple states, we do not want to vote to extend these mask mandates that people hate and that are also scientifically not justifiable, like on airplanes, for example. The only major Senate Democrat who's up for reelection and could lose this year, sort of a, a battleground state, who voted with Bernie Sanders and voted with Chuck Schumer and the rest of the liberals in the Senate on this, voting against ending this mask mandate, Raphael Warnock down in Georgia. You listening? Extra 1063. That's your senator. Now, this is this is why those elections really mattered last January. Warnock voted with Schumer on this one. He wants to keep all those masks on. He also voted to maintain vaccine mandates at the federal level just recently, as did all the Senate Democrats. That was a big mistake, in my view, from Georgia last year. They can correct it this year, but it's going to be a big fight. All right, another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Bill Hemmer in studio when we return. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour of three on the Guy Benson Show, three to six Eastern every weekday right here. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, no charge, on demand every day if you cannot listen live. Programming note, I'll be joining Kennedy tonight in the seven o'clock hour Eastern time. That's Fox Business Network. See you there. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow up today. Maybe just some certainty, some clarity, at least for the moment from the Fed. Up 800 and Check that, 518 points, closing the day at 34,063. With us here in studio is Bill Hammer, co-host of America's Newsroom, Monday through 
Friday, 9 to 11 Eastern with Dana Perino. She's out this week. I saw Martha yes. back in the old stomping grounds we, we, today. We got the old team together, uh, back together today, guy. Nice to see you. Good great, to be with great you. Great to see you. I'll plug your podcast as well, Hammer Time. Hammer Time. Yes, right. Fox mm-hmm. News Radio or foxnewspodcast.com for that. So, Bill, in the top of the hour break, we were just commiserating a little bit. It's a hard week here at yeah. Fox News. We've lost two colleagues. Another one has been wounded and was hospitalized is now, as we reported at the top of the show, out of Ukraine to safety, awake, alert, in good spirits, but was clearly injured in some sort of serious way over there, Benjamin Hall. Some of that news was breaking while you were on the air, mm-hmm. news that you never want to relay sure. to the audience, but that did fall on you. Just your reflections on that and, and what has been a very, very trying series of yeah. days. It's been a dark week. There's no question about it to lose a talent like Pierre, who has been everywhere for us for so many years and was just a multi-talented human being who did it with a good attitude. A tremendous loss for us. Uh, we rely on fixers locally to help us get the job done. And Sasha was that. She was young. She was eager. She was married. I did not realize this, but she was married to the youngest member of the Ukrainian parliament. Wow. Um, so they, and he, he sent a tweet out earlier today that, I mean, it'll stop your heart. I mean, he, he lost the love of his life. Uh, but we rely on these people to help us get around. Uh, who to talk to, where are the stories, what's important. Uh, translation, all that is so significant for us in doing our jobs. And to, to, to lose those two people is just, um, it's incredible. Um, incredible loss for us. And I, I think the fact that Benjamin Hall is going to see his three young girls again is an absolute miracle. And thank the Lord for that. Yeah, um, amen. There were some long days thinking about whether or not that was going to happen. But now we're, we have a pretty good... Pretty good assurance that that will. Yeah, and God and that bless is good that. news. And yes. I and it's it's such a on some level selfish thing. And I was sort of scolding myself earlier in the week for thinking about it. It's like, oh, I've been horrified by the war. I've been I've been covering it very closely. Benjamin Hall being hit and badly wounded and hospitalized was particularly difficult because he's roughly my age. I think he's two years older. Mm-hmm. Family man, Fox News, and like you sort of look at yourself. And you see him and you look at him, you see yourself and like it just it reminds you that life is fragile. Life is precious. Um, Being at a a news network does not make you special or invincible Mm -hmm. in any way. I'm in a much safer place than he is, obviously, or was until he left Ukraine safely. But, man, I just my heart breaks for the families who don't have that good news that the halls at least do. But that is that is that glimmer of great news. This is a father. And his kids will see him again, um, and God willing, for many years to come. And you have to count blessings yeah. in moments like this. Yeah, the, the final thing I would say on that is, as the story is told, I, I, I think it will be viewed as, how did you survive that? Um, without going into detail, which I don't have a lot of, it's, it's an absolute miracle guy. And thank the Lord again for that. Meanwhile, this morning, during your hours on America's Newsroom, the president of Ukraine addressed our Congress, and part of it was in English, speaking directly <clears throat> excuse me, to our president, to our Congress. Um, there was a lot of anticipation for this event. He's yeah. been sort of making the rounds to the people's representatives in a lot of free countries in the West, 
Uh, your thoughts on what we saw this morning from Zelensky yeah. in, in that audience. I, I thought it was a remarkable day. And Martha and I were back together again. Dana's got the week off. And you know what I think was interesting about a guy? What, what, when we were hearing the address and when we got all ready for it, um, you're listening for the headlines, you're listening for the news, and you're working in your head. But later in the broadcast, we played back significant chunks of the speech. And Martha and I were just like, wow. You know, it, we were hanging on every word because for him, every word is profound. They're at a profound moment in their country's history. It's life and death on an hourly basis. And I just thought it was remarkable um, to be there for that moment. And I know he made his appeal to Ottawa early in the week and London a few weeks ago. And all these politicians get up at the end of the speech and they give him a standing ovation, which I think is appropriate and necessary. However, I'm trying to figure all this out. And here's what I don't understand. You, Guy Benson, are not in the summit meeting with Vladimir Putin, are you, in Geneva with Joe Biden and his team? Correct. And you, Guy Benson, are not with Putin in Helsinki with Trump and his team. And the same is true for Obama and the same is true for Bush. Well, what do we know now that we understand about Putin's objectives more so than we ever understood before? And that's he values old Russia real estate more than anything. And if you go back to that that meeting in Geneva in June of 2021 – we were all wrapped up in the story about cybersecurity. We were going to tell Putin what was on off limits, which companies that right. we w- would not tolerate. Don't touch those. That was or... the story. And, now, and I found this piece. Um, it was at CNN. It could have been at the New York Times. It could have been Fox News. It could have been from anywhere. But it was late night last week. And I'm reading through the entire summary, the recap of the summit. Ukraine was mentioned one time. Well, I, I, guy, I'd be willing to bet just as much dollar as you want to put on the table that for Biden and for Trump and for Obama and Bush, B- Putin has been talking about this for 20 years. What was important to him? Cybersecurity is not important to him. That's a hobby. Russian real estate is what matters to him. And yet in November, we still signed that security agreement with Kiev. On November 10th, recognizing someday, someway, somehow, if the conditions are right, we know that you have an intent to join NATO. That was on November 10th. And what happened ever since then? The army built up on the border. If you want to sign that agreement, fine. But give Ukraine the weapons when you do. Mm -hmm. Or don't sign it. And knowing full well Putin's intent coming off of 2014, still give him the weapons. I don't understand why this did not happen. I think this war was entirely unnecessary. Another thought, I can't figure it out. How can we be at war with one country and still negotiate with that same country of the future for another one with the Iran nuclear deal? Bill, I have been beating this drum day after day on this show. It blows my mind. You're saying this is an international pariah. He called him a war criminal a few minutes ago. Yes. Our president, I think correctly, called Putin a war criminal, but we're using the war criminals diplomats to try to get a nuclear deal with another straight up enemy of the United States that calls us, you know, death to America, great Satan, that wouldn't even prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. And we're relying on the war criminals apparatchiks to be our intermediaries in a deal that they are still Biden, his team still aggressively producing. I mean – they might think this is brilliant diplomatic jujitsu or something. To a simpleton like me, it looks crazy. It looks shady. It looks like 12 people are calling all the shots for the entire world to me. 
And we're not even in the room, based on my understanding, in Vienna. We're down the hall passing notes to the Russians. Yeah, they won't, they won't talk to us. The uh, th- Iranians this, won't. Th- this is beyond my ability to comprehend. So here's what I've concluded about Ukraine. I could be totally wrong, but this is just what I think. I follow it just as closely as you do on a daily basis, right? We've been wrapped up in this story for 21 straight days, right? Every hour of your day is consumed with Ukraine, correct? Yep. Mine too. We have armed them well enough so that they can fight Russia to a draw. If you give them the MiGs, that's escalatory, right? So to me, that means if we give you the fighter jets, you have an edge over Russia's army. Why is it more escalatory than, than like the stingers I'm and not, the javelins? I'm not, I'm not saying it is, but publicly and perhaps for Putin it is. But remember, you're trying to keep Putin at the table in another negotiation. So does it not make sense that we're going to give them enough armor to fight apples to apples? as opposed to having an advantage over the Red Army. Mm. Look, I think Russia has performed terribly in this. They haven't been in a war since 1945. They, they understand how difficult this is to do now. We understand that from Iraq and Afghanistan. And our men and women have pulled it together, and they figured it out. You know, the, the, the Russians have not had that opportunity, and they have failed on the field of battle. Now, the Ukrainians have had the advantage because— they're using our technology yep. that we have developed over the past 20 years. And they're fighting an ill-equipped, badly trained, low-morale There is no Russian doubt, force. There is no doubt about and that. It's the, and it's also a home game for them, right? They're, they are defending that. There's an extra—I mean, morale and motivation is huge. Yeah. And that seems to be all on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, yeah one other thing here, and just, you know, file this way, you know, m- maybe this is a data point that we come back to to try and understand this later, but— in 1973, in the Six-Day War of Israel, Golda Meir was the prime minister. Henry Kissinger was the secretary of state. And based on my reading of the war and what happened during that period is that Golda Meir wanted the U.S. to give him as much as they possibly could. And Kissinger held back. And what he did was he gave Israel enough equipment to fight off the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Syrians and the Saudis to a draw. And then Kissinger came in and negotiated the peace agreement. Moscow was kept on the outside. So we helped shape the future for the Middle East that way. But right now, even in this day today, if we even if we allow the Ukrainians to fight right to the level where they can keep Russia. Man on man fight to a draw. Who is out there advocating for a truce? Is Biden negotiating with Putin? Not to our knowledge that, yet. That's what I believe, too. But who is? Germany is. Macron is in France. Yeah, and, Israel, and Israel is as well. Right. We're not at the table, which I think is – I think there's a very big danger to this uh, once they find some sort of truce at some level. Would it be potentially waiting for the moment to then step in where America says, all right, here's, here's the, the stalemate. Now we come in and try to put an end to it? Um, you, you could be right about that. How do people I, die? I, looks, if, if I was first. to be sinister about it, I would think, well, mm, why aren't we doing this? Why, why isn't Blinken taking the, head, the, the lead on this? And maybe it's because we're trying to get a deal done in another country about another country at the same time we're at a proxy war with a different country. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a web and it is... Not going well. I don't know what they're trying to do on two fronts. It's not working on either of them. And a lot of that's on Putin, of course, and and the Iranians. But there's also a U.S. side to this. Bill Hammer thinking big picture on some of this stuff here on The Guy Benson Show. Bill, always great to see you, especially in person. Right on, Guy. Thank you. America's Newsroom every morning, Fox News Channel. We'll be right back. Guy Benson Show. 
It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. So our vice president has said and then tweeted something that I guess we have to talk about. And she said something over the weekend, verbally, at a speech to House Democrats. They had their big conference, and Harris was there, Biden was there. And during her remarks, she said something that got shared widely. I retweeted it on social media, but I actually didn't play it on the air because I wasn't sure if it was just a slip of the tongue or if it was out of context or something, and I felt like it wasn't enough of a deal to raise here on the air because it was such an elementary mistake if, in fact, she was making that mistake. I I almost couldn't believe that even Kamala Harris would make this mistake about what's happening in Ukraine right now. Here's what she said over the weekend that I did not play for you until this moment, and I'll explain why I am choosing to play it now after all. Cut 24. I will say what I know we all say, and I will say over and over again. The United States stands firmly with the Ukrainian people in defense of the NATO alliance. All right, standing with the people of Ukraine in defense of the NATO alliance. So here's the thing that basically everyone who heard that immediately thought over the weekend. Ukraine is not a part of NATO. That is one of the huge storylines in this entire conflict. I think it's overblown as you know, a Russian excuse that what they're really upset about and concerned about for their own security is Ukraine joining NATO. The threat is Russia. The threat is not NATO. NATO is not going to invade Russia, but Russia does like invading its neighbors, as we've seen repeatedly. But Ukraine is not part of the NATO alliance. And even Zelensky seems to be conceding we're not going to be part of the NATO alliance. We want other security guarantees and alliances, but we're not going to be joining that pact. But the way that she phrased it, it sounded like she was suggesting that the United States is standing with NATO in defense of Ukraine when Ukraine's not part of NATO. And if they were part of NATO, we would be at war with Russia right now. All of NATO would be under Article 5. So, again, I thought maybe that was shorn of some context. Maybe she misread something from a teleprompter, and it's she knows that Ukraine isn't in NATO, but it was just phrased badly or something. So I decided not to really go there until she tweeted about this yesterday. She tweeted something almost verbatim. She tweeted this yesterday. Quote, when I was in Poland, I met with U.S. and Polish service members, thanking them for standing with our NATO allies for freedom, peace, and security. Okay. Then she said, the United States stands firmly with the Ukrainian people in defense of the NATO alliance. She said it again, this time in a written tweet. Now, I don't know if she's sending out her own tweets. Probably not. But some staffer may have lifted the exact same line from a speech that she gave and stuck it into a tweet. It doesn't make any sense. The U.S. can be standing firmly with Ukraine and with the Ukrainian people. We can also be standing separately in solidarity with our NATO allies and making clear, as Biden has, that if there is an inch of NATO territory threatened in an aggressive way by Putin, there would be NATO consequences. But she is seemingly alighting these concepts. And now that it's been in a speech and a tweet, a tweet that was deleted, by the way, 
you have to ask, does the vice president fully know, has she internalized that Ukraine is not in NATO and standing with the Ukrainians is not at all synonymous with standing in defense of the NATO alliance? Because you say it once, there's a flub. You say it and then write it on two different occasions, that might be what you believe or what your staff thinks. So I think the fact that they deleted the tweet was a recognition that this was a screw-up. She got a fair amount of grief over the weekend for what she said, and then they put it in a tweet a few days later. It is absolute amateur hour over in the office of the vice president. And it starts at the top with her. If she's going to make nonsensical statements, maybe leave it not in the realm of actual war and peace and making conflations like she did involving NATO and Ukraine. If she's going to keep muddling things, she should at least stick to things like this. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Stitch that on a pillow. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show and through the week here on The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. We are very happy to welcome back to the airwaves Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina. And Senator, great to have you back here. Uh, Great to hear you, Guy. You know, I just want to start on a personal note. Your office has been helping my family on something, a family friend who served overseas, served this country. He's had some troubles, and your office has been very responsive. So I just wanted to publicly thank you and your team. I know you deal with constituents all the time. He is a North Carolinian. Uh, It's a big part of your job, and I just want to acknowledge it. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. My staff do great work, and uh, we love serving constituents. Let's get to some of the huge issues of the day, starting with the economy and inflation. We see that the Fed is making moves There was a double-digit increase in inflation on a key metric on the production side this week. Consumer sentiment is way down, more than a 10-year low. Your overall thoughts on where this economy stands and sort of the blame game that we're seeing from the Democratic Party trying to claim that really none of this is their fault and none of their policies are driving this. Well, I think it's absurd. You know, when after we did five bills in response to uh, COVID um, to provide support to businesses and individuals, the the first thing that Chuck Schumer did is pass a $1.9 trillion package, which had virtually nothing to do with COVID, which is one of the reasons why we have problems that we have today. It's one of the reasons why we have almost 8 million jobs open, and we're not sure when they're going to be filled. Uh, The president, the the administration, 
Within hours of getting inaugurated, he went in, canceled the permit for the XL pipeline, sent the message to uh, drilling and mining operations in the United States that he was shutting them down. And then he goes on TV and says, oh, they could drill today. That's absolutely not true. He has attacked the energy industry. That's one of the reasons why our prices are going up. He hasn't addressed some of the fundamental problems with the economy, and he aided and abetted making it worse when he signed the American Rescue Plan. Well, and he wanted to spend $5 trillion more on Build Back Better. That's the other thing. If they had gotten That's their right. way, right, they were one or two votes shy of having the ability to spend $5 trillion more new dollars on top of all of it. And I guess the theory that they told us at the time was, oh, that will reduce inflation. I'm not sure a single person believes that, including them. Uh, including dozens of economists who said, well, it'll reduce inflation years from now. But in the here and now where most of us live, it was going to be devastating to the economy. And, And again, the Build Back Better plan had nothing to do with the fundamental issues that we need to address. Um, the, the, the president, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and the liberal progressives are tone deaf. They're not listening to the American people, but they're going to listen to the American people when they vote in November. And I don't think it's going to end well for them. Now, that's what the polls would suggest at the moment, certainly. I'm glad that you brought up their so-called rescue plan, nearly $2 trillion in incredibly wasteful spending. It dovetails into a story that I addressed on the show yesterday. I'm not sure if you saw this from ABC News, although I'm sure you're at least reading about what the administration is saying. Here's the headline from ABC. White House says first cuts to COVID efforts will hit Americans next week as funding stalls in Congress. And the subheadline is the Biden administration has warned for weeks that there was not enough money left. And if you read the story, it's the White House basically saying, oh, we're going to have to cut this funding on testing. We're going to have to cut this funding on antibody treatments for people who get COVID because we're just out of money. And I have to tell you, Senator, sitting here and remembering the $6 trillion in COVID relief that has been passed partially on a bipartisan basis, some of it, as you mentioned, on a partisan basis, but when you add it all up, it is $6 trillion. I cannot believe that they are trying to pretend that they are out of money on this front and they have to make painful cuts on basic things like testing and monoclonal antibodies unless they get billions more from Congress. And they're really pointing the finger at Republicans here. What on earth are they talking about? Where did this money go? Well, they're actually trying to uh, to create fear, uncertainty and doubt when there is no doubt that there is plenty of unobligated COVID relief money and a lot of the pork that they had in the American Rescue Plan that could more than eclipse any legitimate needs that we have for ongoing COVID. Uh, but they're not willing to do it. All they want to do is add to the debt and fund programs with the ARP. It, it, look at that alone. Now they're complaining about not having enough money for, for COVID relief. $1.9 trillion. Yeah, a year ago. A year less ago. Than 10, and got less than 10% of it had anything to do with COVID. Right. So I think the president's That's got the problem. To, he's got a pattern of behavior here that he's got to get over. He's got to stop misleading the American people and exploiting this crisis to, to basically accelerate a liberal progressive agenda. Meanwhile, on the international front, you serve on the Armed Services Committee in the U.S. Senate. Were you in attendance today for the Zelensky speech? Yeah, I was. And, and we, had a, uh, we had a virtual uh, 
conversation with him about two Saturdays ago as well. I, I, I think he's he's really stepped up as a leader. I pray for the Ukrainian people, the Russian, or uh, Vladimir Putin is is effectively, in my mind, a murderer, a liar, and a thug, and he has to be held accountable for what he's doing in Ukraine. And we have to do everything we can to support the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian army, and President Zelensky. What was the mood in the room? I, you could see on TV a very warm reception, lots of big ovations. In terms of the requests that he was making, I know some of those requests are being fulfilled. Some of them really can't be. He's asking for a no-fly zone. I cannot blame the guy for asking for all the obvious reasons. But there are also American interests here not getting into you know, shooting war with Russia. Uh, if you could just talk about some of those tensions about what the Ukrainians are begging for and what we have done and what we maybe haven't done but could. Well, I, I think, one, uh, uh, many people may not uh, know this, but uh, we have to impose secondary sanctions on Russia that shuts down the $5 billion a day they get to fund the war machine through energy purchases or uh, through basically exporting energy. Um, we have to get higher altitude aerial defense, uh, offensive and defensive weapons in place. I firmly believe that we should get the MiG fighters there, um, mainly to change the calculus for Putin. Uh, we have to continue to resupply javelins, stingers, anything that we can do with some of our NATO partners and allies that are former Warsaw Pact allies. They have weapons that we can transfer there. We should transfer there to allow the Ukrainians to defend uh, what is a, a really, I think, an, a, an attack that's in disarray. I mean, Putin has failed strategically and tactically. And if the Ukrainian, if Zelensky and the Ukrainian army and those who are, who are now joining the resistance are properly equipped, they can beat Vladimir Putin. The president spoke earlier today. A reporter asked a question of him about the MiGs, those fighters that the Polish government has offered, and apparently the Biden administration has said, no, we're going to have no part in helping uh, furnishing those to the Ukrainians. And that question was posed to the president. He said he wouldn't answer it. He has no comment on that. Why can't that happen? Even if we're worried about our base being used or whatever, shouldn't that transfer be facilitated somehow? I think so. I, you know, guy, I think it's illogical. I mean, we're providing them with precision-guided weapons right. in, in the uh, in the form of javelin and stinger missiles. We're uh, we seem to have increasing support for fielding uh, anti-missile batteries, uh, probably the S three hundreds, S two hundreds. I don't I don't understand the distinction, and and I, I believe that it would it would add to about twenty to thirty MiG fighters that they already have. It would change. Uh, Putin's calculus in terms of uh, where he assaults next. So I, I mean, we 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 need to work through the process of transfer, whether it goes through Germany from Poland uh, to from from Germany to Ukraine. But those are mechanics that we should be able to work out. One thing I do believe uh, that speech had an impact on a number of Democrat members who believe that we should answer their call. If you think about it. Uh, Biden was not quick to impose sanctions until it was clear Congress was going to pass a bill, and then suddenly he got on board. I think congressional action needs to be taken, up to and including a uh, an airlift. I think that there should be a humanitarian airlift, bringing food in there. He is trying to starve uh, the people of Kiev and a number of other cities in his siege, that, that he, the transition that he's moving well, to. We need to get food, uh, medicine, things to help the Ukrainian people, and, and challenge 
uh, Vladimir Putin to prevent us from doing that. I, I totally agree with what you just said there. I would also point out that based on multiple reports, when it comes to starving, his own troops are having trouble getting food and fuel. So, I mean, it's been a debacle for the Russians militarily so far. I hope it continues to be. Relatedly, but more tangentially, this Iran negotiation that is going on, and apparently the administration reportedly is making more concessions, not just to the Iranians, but also to the Russians, who are the intermediary here. We're negotiating right this moment in this era of Russian aggression in this outrageous war. We are using Russian diplomats to try to argue for our interests, supposedly, with the Iranian regime in this nuclear deal. You are one of almost every single Republican in the Senate to sign a letter saying this is not acceptable. The rumors about this deal, because they're all sort of camouflage right now and they're hiding the football. Uh, the rumors are very disturbing. This must come to Congress for a vote. What can you tell us about what Republicans in the Senate plan to do to at least bring a vote to the floor on this before it gets implemented? Well, we we we're, we intend to do it. You know, Obama basically bypassed. He didn't make it a treaty. wasn't subject to ratification. We think it should have been. Uh, we're trying to force a vote to show that there's consensus or a lack of consensus. I think that there are a number of Democrats who don't want that vote. That's true. Because they would probably be forced to vote no. Um, we are negotiating with the biggest state sponsor of terror across the globe. Iran has a network of terrorists that are in this hemisphere and all over the Middle East and in Europe. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year funding terrorist organizations, and they're primarily responsible for the daily threat that the Israeli people have. Why we're negotiating with them, the only reason I could see Biden doing it today is he's concerned with energy prices. If he's concerned with energy prices, he should reestablish us as an energy superpower, not negotiate and come to terms with a leading terrorist organization in the mullahs that run Iran right now. And I would point out just briefly that there are serious reports and threats that the DOJ has been dealing with, and I know that there have been uh, reauthorizations of Secret Service protection for former Trump administration officials from John Bolton to former Secretary Mike Pompeo because there are credible threats against their lives, the Iranians trying to plot assassinations. I mean, it's like everything they do on the world stage is some sort of poisonous, toxic, malign thing. And we're trying to enshrine their nuclear program and we're trying to do it through the Russians while giving both of those regimes concessions. I mean, it almost reads like a cartoon of weak, feckless American foreign policy, and yet it's what we're seeing playing out in Vienna right now. And I, I hope it fails. I hope it crumbles. I know there's been a pause because the Russians are overreaching, but it looks like the Biden people are like, hey, sorry about that overreach. Let's try to make this work anyway. Uh, it's something that I'm very worried about, and I'm glad almost every Senate Republican is sounding the alarm on that publicly. Last question, Senator Tillis. You are also on the Judiciary Committee you're going to have a very busy time upcoming. There's a Supreme Court confirmation fight imminent, right? I think next week some of the process begins. You have met, if I'm not mistaken, with the nominee, Judge Brown Jackson. What can you tell us about the process and what do you make of her? What do you think of her? 
Well, we'll have – I met with her last week. We'll have opening comments uh, by the members on Monday, and then we'll have the hearing uh, for probably most of the week. It will it will go on for three or four days. Um, I voted no uh, for her confirmation to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, I met with her. I'm looking at this nomination. Uh, you look at SCOTUS nominations differently than you do district and circuit court judges. We're going through her more than 500 opinions, and – Working through a judicial philosophy that uh, that may make it would probably make it difficult uh, for me to vote in support. But I'm going to go in. I'm going to ask questions, and uh, and then I'll form an opinion on the tail end of it. And very quick follow up: if she gets confirmed, I think that's very likely that she will at the end of this process. Justice Breyer isn't leaving, right? For a few more months, he's staying on as the ninth justice until his retirement at the end of the term. How does that work exactly? She would be confirmed but not sworn in until the vacancy actually occurs. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, so she would, uh, uh, he will complete uh, the session. They'll be rendering a lot of opinions uh, uh, in the June timeframe, July at the latest, and then in the intervening time before they start uh, the, uh, hearing arguments in the uh, fall, she would be sworn in and seated. Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina, serving on some very relevant committees these days in particular. We're very grateful that you spent some time with us to really address a wide array of questions here. Senator, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Let's pray for Ukraine. Absolutely. Tom Tillis of North Carolina on The Guy Benson Show, which continues right after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. Bill Malugin coming up to start the next hour here on The Guy Benson Show. The very latest from the border and the numbers that we talked about yesterday, the February numbers that are eye-popping. Details coming up. First this, we had Janice Dean, our colleague, on the show last week, talking about what seems to be a comeback attempt from Governor Andrew Cuomo, the disgraced, resigned Democratic former governor of New York, where I happen to be broadcasting today. And, I mean, it's shameless, which is not surprising. They are shameless people. And by they, I mean the Cuomos. I saw that Chris Cuomo is seeking something like $125 million from CNN in arbitration. <laughs> what? $125 million. As I say, shameless. Given what he did, what we know he did, what his bosses were doing at CNN, but that's a separate issue. Andrew Cuomo, the former governor was ousted from office and ended up resigning in disgrace for a reason, actually for multiple reasons. The media likes to focus mostly on the sexual harassment, misconduct stuff. That was a serious issue. But to me, and certainly to Janice Dean for her familial reasons, it was the nursing home's death scandal and the cover-up and the lying and the book deal. That was the bigger deal because it was a matter of life and death. And on that front, there's a new report out just this week. And we have to keep reminding people of this just in case people have short memories. He's spending campaign war chest money on ads, trying to rehabilitate his image. He's out there speaking at churches. I saw he's got another church sermon coming up. Well, here's the news story just this week from the New York Times. The administration of former Governor Andrew Cuomo failed to publicly account for the deaths of about 4,100, 4,000 plus nursing home residents in New York during the pandemic. This is according to an audit released by the state comptroller. The audit found that the health department 
under Cuomo, at times underreported the full death toll by as much as 50 percent over the course of almost a year. The 41-page report concluded that the health department often acquiesced to the narrative Mr. Cuomo and his top officials wanted to promote during the pandemic. Of course, he had millions of dollars at stake in this book deal. Quote, our audit findings are extremely troubling, the comptroller said in a statement. The public was misled by those at the highest level of state government, a.k.a. Cuomo, through distortion and suppression of the facts when New Yorkers deserved the truth, end quote. That is the story of Andrew Cuomo. No gaslighting, no bamboozlement, please. The people of New York, you've got to see through this. Reject the comeback that no one asked for. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for our final hour on this Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Glad to have you here. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. You can listen live many ways. Many of them are right there at GuyBensonShow.com. Also, our great affiliates across the country. But if you miss any of the live show, podcast stands ready for free on demand. Seven days a week, including, uh, including rather bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour, talking Ukraine, and hope to see you there. And we remind you that the happy hour, this final hour, is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is really good. I've been telling you that it's expanding and coming to new states. We told you about four new ones a couple weeks ago. Well, we have four more to announce. Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Nebraska, your wait is over. The Long Drink is coming. TheLongDrink.com to see where it's sold near you. You can also order online. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. We are joined now by Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News, based in L.A., but spends a lot of time at the southern border, as many of you know. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Guy. Well, I want to start with the February numbers. And I feel like they kind of fly under the radar these days. Month after month, they are eye-opening. They are concerning. They're significantly worse than a year ago. And we know last year was quite bad on this front. I get war is raging in Ukraine. That's the number one story, as it should be. But on our southern border, that crisis has not vanished. In fact, it has not even dissipated. It is getting worse You see it every day. You cover it every day. Let's walk through some of the numbers. An increase this February over the last February numbers, 21, of more than 60 percent. Those are encounters, right? Put that into perspective. It's the shortest month of the year, and there were almost 165,000 encounters at the southern border last month. Right, and it's one of the slowest months of the year. It's still in one of those winter months, traditionally the busiest months of the border, those springtime warmer months. 
And I believe it's the highest February ever recorded, if not one of the highest Februarys ever recorded. But that's right, 61% over February of last year. And we know fiscal year 2021 set the all-time record with 1.7 million encounters. But looking at the bigger picture, you mentioned it's not slowing down. Uh, That's absolutely true. Not only is it not slowing down at the border, it is getting magnitudes worse than what we saw last year, which, again, set the all-time record. Just to put that in perspective for you, if we compare the first five months of fiscal year 2021 versus the first five months of fiscal year 2022, we're talking October through February fiscal uh, fiscal 21 versus October through February fiscal year 2022, the numbers are staggering. So for fiscal year 2022, the first five months have about 838,000 migrant encounters at our southern border. That number was 398,000 for fiscal year 2021. Again, that was the all-time record. That's more than double. It's a 110% increase. So what we're looking at so far is a 110% increase over the all-time record year already. And we have not even gotten to the busy months yet. March, April, May, June, those are the big-time months. We've not even gotten there yet. Okay, so I know that's a lot of numbers that we just put on the table. I just want to underscore, reiterate briefly to make sure we've got this right. In fiscal year 2021, so that was uh, last, last October, November, December, January, February, those first five months last year, there were not quite 400,000 encounters at the southern border Same time period, November, December, January, February of this year, starting in October up through last month, same time period one year later, it is just shy of 840,000 encounters with the probably the worst months, you know, coming next. That that is astonishing because it's not like it's not like last year was a low year or a relatively good year it was one of the worst years ever it was terrible i mean worst in decades and this one is blowing last year out of the water already it is and what's crazier to think about is those encounters they do not account for gotaways two weeks ago a very very high level dhs source told me that since october there have already been more than 220,000 known gotaways. So we're looking at roughly a quarter million people who have slipped past our border, and they do not count in those encounter numbers. What was the number last year? Do you know off the top of your head roughly number of gotaways? It it was over 400,000. So we're conservatively, if we look at this conservatively, we're talking between last year and this year, well over 600,000 known gotaways. So far. So far. So far. And and so So if we... we extrapolate out just a little bit and we add up the gotaway. So these are people who are not encountered, not apprehended, but we, we, we know that they're coming. We detect them either, you know, visually, but we don't have the manpower to go get them or, you know, some sort of satellite uh, or rather a drone or some sensor picks up. Okay. We know they're coming, but we're not going to apprehend them. Those are the gotaways. And I would guess a lot of those disproportionately as some of the more dangerous people, they don't want to get caught. They, they take evasive action not to get caught. That number is already, you know, closing in on 700,000 over the last year and a half or so. I mean, we could be at a million gotaways by the end of fiscal 22. Does that sound roughly correct? We are on track to easily not just hit that, but we'll probably go well past that. A million. A million. Yeah. I mean, I like we here's the thing, Bill. 
You live and breathe this stuff every day. I try to keep a focus on the issue, not as a huge immigration hawk. It has never been a top issue for me, but this is just out of control. It is totally unsustainable. It's outrageous. It's like it's an insult to the sovereignty of the country. A million people in the first two years of this president coming into the country and getting away, that that does not include the people apprehended. That does not include the people among those who then get released into the country. You and I have talked about that. Those are just the gotaways. That is a figure that I that I can hardly believe. Yeah, no, it's remarkable. And what's scary is it's going to get significantly worse. I've been hearing from a lot of my DHS contacts, Border Patrol contacts, that uh, they are expecting Title 42 to drop. Right. This is my next, next question. So. Yeah. So explain yeah. that. Explain what that means. So basically the way it works right now and the way it's worked since COVID-19 came into the picture, the Trump administration started utilizing public health code Title 42, which means when migrants cross illegally and they're encountered by Border Patrol, rather than taking them into the processing center and doing all the paperwork and letting them request asylum and going through the process, they literally just put them on a bus and turn them right back to Mexico. It's called expelling them from the country, and they're doing it on the basis of public health because of COVID-19. They just turn them right around and send them back into Mexico. And this has been a, a large majority of the removals from the country under the Biden administration. They kept Title 42. So about 60 percent of the migrants who are encountered are expelled via Title 42. What my DHS contacts are telling me is once Title 42 drops, which is going to happen any day now because we've seen all these COVID restrictions being pulled back, so there's not really a reason to keep Title 42. Well, and anymore. also there's a lot of pressure, right, coming on Biden from the yeah. left, from the amnesty people, from the immigration activist crowd and Democrats on Capitol Hill. You've got to get rid of – I mean they've been fighting Title 42. They, they're in favor of every COVID restriction you can imagine except for Title 42. They've been fighting it for a long time. Now they're really turning up the heat. And yeah, the reports are they're going to lift it. I mean, talk about the the magnet getting turned into like, you know, turbo drive. Right. So the way it's been described to me by Border Patrol officials and DHS contacts is, quote, expect a surge upon a surge and a, quote, bleep show and total chaos. Because what's going to happen is, instead of just being able to send those people back immediately when they make contact with them out in the field, all those people are suddenly going to have to come into Border Patrol processing facilities now. And we saw what it was like last year with Title 42 in place last summer when we were getting more than 200000 a month, when those facilities were completely overflowing. Yep. We've seen those Swamped. pictures from, yeah, from Donna, Texas. So all of a sudden, with Title 42 gone, every single person is going to have to start going into those facilities to be processed. And migrants are going to know the word is going to get out, especially with those northern triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador, the ones who are primarily Title 42 because we have agreements with those countries. Hey, they're not sending them back anymore. Right. So the, the word's going to get out with the migrants that you're not going to be expelled immediately. And Border Patrol is no longer going to have a tool to immediately send people back. So it's going to be a surge on top of a surge. Oh, yeah. And well, because every- not only, Bill, are they going to know that Title 42 is gone, they won't necessarily know exactly the mechanism or the name of it. But all of a sudden, those immediate expulsions are gone. That word gets out. All right, we're going to come. They also know what they've already been learning now for a year plus, which is under this administration, they're going to go through the process. A lot of them will have a very good chance of staying and just you know having a, a flight paid for them to fly into Chicago or whatever to meet up with someone that they might know. I mean, the incentive that is already outrageously powerful 
for people to come to this country illegally is going to go into hyperdrive any day when Title 42 goes away. And by the way, in case people think that this is hyperbolic on, on your part or my part, I want to dig in. One of the numbers from February was on unaccompanied children. And we remember there was a big unaccompanied minors crisis on Obama's watch, then on Trump's watch. Here we go again with Biden. Title 42, an exemption for Title 42 expulsions has been unaccompanied minors. That has happened under the Biden administration. And what is the result? Encounters of unaccompanied children last month increased by 37 percent to more than 12,000 this past February, compared to just a month earlier in January, uh, fewer than 9,000. A 37 percent hike jump in just that group of unaccompanied minors who have that carve-out for Title 42. It seems like that incentive is already being responded to just within the realm of kids. When you throw the floodgates open for people of all ages by getting rid of Title 42, you can sort of extrapolate out how out of control this is going to get. No, absolutely. And the Biden administration signaled from the very beginning they weren't going to remove children from the country. The Trump administration was doing that. So we saw a huge decrease in the number of family units showing up. Well, they know now under the Biden administration that children will be allowed to stay. So that's why we see all these crazy videos of coyotes dropping little kids off the border wall in remote deserts. They know if they can, or these five-year-olds just showing up on the river completely by themselves, they know they're not going to get sent back. And you mentioned how the word will get out amongst migrants. That's, that's already happening. For instance, Nicaraguans. Right now, Border Patrol cannot title 42 Nicaraguans because the Nicaraguan government won't take anybody back without a Nicaraguan passport. So what's happening? All the Nicaraguans are dumping their passports at the river before they're apprehended by Border Patrol. And then random yeah. other so nationalizations, these... yeah, random other na- yeah, r- random other citizens from other countries are now claiming to be Nicaraguans, and then they have no paperwork. So what happens? Well, they can't send them back without the paperwork, so they're mass-releasing Nicaraguans, just mass-releasing them. My Border Patrol contacts in the Rio Grande Valley tell me every single day there are flights full of Nicaraguans going to Florida after they've just been mass-released. So the loopholes are identified and exploited. And it's going to get worse. Bill, you and I are going to have many more of these conversations, I think, in the coming months. It's going to get worse. So let's end 30 seconds on a happier note. Dogs and puppies. What happened with your family? This is a good story. Yeah, this is awesome. So basically, since last summer, we're always encountering stray puppies, stray dogs out there in the border in La Jolla. We've been taking care of them for months. We've got names for all of them. We love them all. And um, I, my mom and brother couldn't take it anymore, seeing all the pictures and videos. So a few weeks ago, they flew out from California to the border, went to La Jolla, adopted two of the little puppies, and uh, drove them back to California. Oh. And uh, they they had a vet check. They were full of worms and everything, but they're doing well now. They're healthy. Good. They're getting big. We named them uh, Rio and Roma for areas of the You Rio love to now. see it, and they're very cute. I saw it on your Twitter. Bill Malugin on The Guy Benson Show. Always a pleasure, sir. We'll be right back. Happy Hour, Guy Benson Show. We are back. So here's some video that we can play the audio of. President Biden was at the White House yesterday, and he was making some remarks and mentioned at one point that the people arrayed on the stage around him, that whole plan had changed a bit because of a COVID diagnosis. 
Now, the person who was diagnosed was hard to discern based on his explanations. And at first, he inadvertently, I think, pointed the finger at himself, that he was the one. And then it sounded like the first lady, Jill Biden, was correcting him to make sure that it was like, no, no, it's not you. Just just listen. Here's cut 25. There's been a little change in the arrangement of who's on the stage because of the first lady's husband uh, contracting COVID. But uh, look at this room and what you see. Pardon? That's right. She's fine. It's me. That's not together. The second lady, the first gentleman. How about that? Okay, so I understand this is not that important. This is just a series of flubs and screw-ups. But this man has been in Washington forever, for like a century. He was vice president. He's been president for more than a year. If anyone in D.C. would know just sort of by muscle memory all the nomenclature of how you say things and what people's official descriptions are, it would be someone like Joe Biden. But he says the first lady's husband contracted COVID. Of course, the first lady is Dr. Jill Biden, whose husband is indeed Joe Biden, president of the United States, the one who is speaking. So he is accidentally referring to himself. She gently corrects him. There's a laugh in the room, kind of nervous laughter. He then says she's fine, which, again, doesn't really make sense. It's not really responsive to the mistake. Then he corrects himself, talking about the first gentleman. But the first gentleman would be if Joe Biden, the president, had a same-sex marriage, his husband would be the first gentleman in this case. He's referring to the second gentleman, husband to the vice president, Kamala Harris. Again, I don't want to, like, kick the guy for some screw-ups that are ultimately inconsequential, but it's a little disconcerting that stuff that should be second nature and easy with the titles, he's not new to the game, is not coming easily to him. And even when he is, look, we all misspeak, and then you realize, oops, uh, gosh, I got that wrong. Then when he corrected himself, he still got it wrong again. Like, I get that second gentleman doesn't really roll off the tongue. There's never been one before until this administration. So that's not quite as easy, perhaps, to remember. But first gentleman is just also incorrect. We do wish the second gentleman a speedy recovery. And in response to all of what you just heard, we did get an exclusive comment from the vice president's office. Just don't ask her about NATO, whatever you do. Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today on the program, Sandra Smith was here in studio 
talking about, among other things, inflation and that pain that seems to be getting worse. The implications for families, the implications for our economy more broadly. That was the subject of my conversation with Sandra Smith. Meanwhile, at home, it is in a different way. Mm-hmm. Getting difficult out there for American families. I mean, they're seeing it at the pump. They're seeing it in the price of everything basically going up. We saw a key inflation metric this week into the double digits now in the increase on the production side. Consumer sentiment is at an 11-year low. Yeah. And now the Fed has sprung into action today. What did they do? What does that telegraph to you? So they raised rates. It was the first rate hike that they have implemented um, in quite some time. I mean, you're talking years. three three years, but it was a quarter point rate hike. Larry Kudlow was just on my show saying this was not enough. They needed to do a half point or a full point because in order to get inflation under control, it's going to take a whole lot more. Obviously, Guy, the other end of that is the Fed has to be sensitive to running our economy into a recession because that could certainly happen if they tighten too quickly or raise those interest rates too quickly. That is the very delicate balance that the Federal Reserve uh, has in front of them right now. Uh, so his take was too little too late on the part of Larry Kudlow. Larry Summers, of a, a formerly of a Democratic administration, he is putting out statements. He's, you know, he wrote a piece this morning. He's worried about stagflation. He's worried about the United States basically entering a, a, a period of very little or no economic growth can, whatsoever. Can you explain and define for our younger listeners, myself included, stagflation? Because this country, thank God, hasn't seen that in mm-hmm. decades. So it's like, oh, was that a Carter thing? Well, yeah, but but it's it, it can come back. What is stagflation? Very easy. It, it's a very simple definition. It is a period of of very little growth, if no growth at all, and we and that's realistic right now. Let me point to two amid two, inflation. Amid inflation, right, so it's but, both. Let, but let me but let me use that to paint the picture. Uh, the Biden administration likes to tout that wages have been going up. That is fact. That's great. We've been looking for that to happen for quite some time. It, they're up single digits. I just think just over 5% growth, right? Uh, while at the same time, you've now got double-digit inflation growth. That full interview with Sandra Smith of America Reports on Fox News Channel, available along with the rest of today's show on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine is back from her mysterious day off. We will ask her about that. We will also talk about a personality test that came up on Gutfeld last night. I'll give my results. We'll see if Cookie has hers when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. On this Wednesday from New York City, I'll see you tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business, 7 p.m. Eastern. Looking forward to sitting down with her face-to-face. We had dinner last night, which was lovely, and now we'll do the work thing together. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. Podcast always free, the entire show every day on demand. No charge to you. Well, producer Christine is now back, and she's here in New York, as am I, so we caught up just a little bit. A couple things here, Christine. Number one, you were off yesterday. And there were a few theories. I know you said that you were, quote, unquote, closing on your house or whatever. But on Monday, you texted the team in our group text saying that you went back and you listened to the show on the podcast. And you felt that you sounded, quoting you here, like a crazy person in the home stretch. And I'm wondering, did you really just call out on Tuesday 
out of shame. You just you couldn't show your face around here because I don't know, you overshared about your hypnosis? No, it's not about oversharing. I I feel like you led me down a path that I didn't intend to go down and I didn't explain George the way I should have. George, your spirit animal that you saw in a vision? My spirit guide. My angel. Uh, I'm no, 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 you're doing it again. No, there's no. A, there's no leading here. <laughs> These are all things, just like in hypnosis, everything you're saying you want to say. I just felt that I sounded uh, crazy, and maybe it's time to take a step back from the home stretches. So I will be just enjoying the three of you talking today. Okay, let's see how that goes. Second thing is, did you see the Anna Delvey news yesterday that she was deported? Were you, in fact, closing on your house, or had you handcuffed yourself to the airplane in protest to try to keep your hero here in America? I booked myself on the same flight with her so I could I could sit with her. You're, like, right behind her. She, of course, would somehow have gotten you to pay for her to be in first class. Right. And you would be and you would be occasionally sneaking up to first class to little like make little comments to her. She'd probably go away. Yeah, she you're, would. You're she not would, the VIP. She would wave you away. The curtain. See the curtain? It's closed. Get out. She has been interviewed since, by the way, and she said that the accent that Julie is doing in Avenda Anna is so annoying and obviously that's not her. And it's insufferable. Your impression is of the show accent, not the real accent. Correct. Got it. And you've scaled back on that because, as you mentioned, your daughter was then doing it. Well, yeah, my daughter's throwing Monopoly money in the air going, you puh. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) To her friends. Was that a denial that you were not dealing with anything related to Anna Delvey on your day off yesterday? I was moving. Uh We closed on our house and I was moving. A year ago, and I believe it was... War Wyatt, who pointed this out, a year ago this week, you know what tomorrow is? St. Patrick's Day. Ah, yes. Was that, what was that? A little luck of the Irish, huh? That's, that's, let's, let's try to work on that. Where is me pot of gold? Dan is ready to walk out. That's like Paul Rudd in I Love You, Man, but he tries to do Irish, but he's (laughs) actually doing like Jamaican accent. (laughs) That is, that is cookie to a tea. Well, you often say when I try to do my Irish accent, it turns into a pirate. It does. Yes, because you're, you're like, arr, arr, me gold. I'm like, that's not an Irish person. That's just a pirate. I'll work on it because tomorrow um, I'll be back for tomorrow's home stretch, mm-hmm. taking you, a break. Yeah, you're, you're boycotting today's, obviously, but you'll be back tomorrow. But the question is, as War Wyatt noted last year, On or around St. Patrick's Day, you were mysteriously absent. And we know people tend to get a little carried away this week, whether they're Irish or not, with the booze. And maybe that explains what you were up to yesterday. Jeez, he has a memory on him. Yeah. Doesn't he? So if we put all of these together, you were not closing on your house. You were horribly hungover from your St. Patrick's Day revelry while protesting the deportation of Anna Delvey while feeling shame from your previous oversharing on the Monday home stretch. Apparently it was a rough day for me yesterday. Well, th- this is just the working theory. None of it. None of it's true. But okay, I, I that's did... a full and categorical denial from Cookie and her spokespeople. I did feel shame about George. I'm not speaking about that that was the last you'll hear about him. I'm not speaking about him anymore. When I told that's my husband 
that I brought up George, he he put his hands in his head and said, oh, Cookie, no. Yeah. By if the people way, don't know who George is, they can get acquainted with nope. that fictional character nope. by going to the Monday home stretch. It'll be on Bonus Benson no, no, it this won't. weekend on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yep, GuyBensonShow.com. Speaking of Cookie, the Verizon guy was hooking up our cable yesterday, and my husband screamed out, Cookie, you know, do something or whatever. And he looks at me, he's like, cool name you got, Cookie. I said, that's not my real name. I said, I like it. He's like, can I call you Cookie now? Good. That's a callback to one of their commercials. They're not a sponsor here, although I do use their uh, their network. Which brings us, total non sequitur, to something we discussed on Gutfeld last night. There was a personality, I guess, survey or test that they sent all the guests. They want us to take it. And the point was to determine whether you are an easy or difficult person to get along with. And just for a sense, there were a lot of questions. There were a few dozen questions. And then they gave you a final score and different, like there were seven different categories where you could potentially be difficult or easy. Quiet, Wyatt, can you just read two or three questions that were representative of the type of thing that we had to answer just so people can get a sense of it? Okay, so one of them is I keep track of sensitive information that could be used to hurt people at a later time. Okay, so like – and then you have to say like strongly agree, somewhat agree, neutral, somewhat disagree, or strongly disagree. So do you keep basically dossiers on people to have evidence to use against them in the future should you need to do so? That's one question. I did a strong disagree on that one. I – I don't have the time or the bandwidth to do this type of thing, but some people do. All right, so that's one question. Yes. Another question is, others have told me I am a hothead. Okay. And that would be also a hard no from me, but speaking only for myself, maybe give us one more. People do what I want them to do because they are afraid of me. Mm -hmm. The fear factor. Uh, so I think it's clear that here at the show, the person who engenders the most raw fear is Wyatt, obviously. I mean, it's just – it's imposing. It's scary, frankly. Um, and Wyatt, I hope you're doing some introspection as you answer these questions. But as it turns out, I believe it's roughly a scale of 1 to 10. One – or sorry, 1 to 100, right? 1 being you're the easiest person in the world to deal with. 100 being you are – off the charts, difficult. So the goal is to have a lower number. So my number, when I answered all the questions, was 31, 31%. And it tells me, the computer tells me, you are an easy person to get along with. And I think that's basically correct. I think I'm a pretty easy person to get along with. I think the key here, honestly, would be to have friends, family, and coworkers take this test about you to get a more honest assessment because you're trying to self-assess here. So you might sort of sandpaper some of the rough edges in your own mind. You might want to sort of, I don't know, go easy on yourself, airbrush a few things. But I think I was pretty honest, and I ended up with a 31 saying I'm an easy person to get along with, and I was easier than anyone else on set last night except for Tyrus, according to him. I'm just saying. He said, like, he's the easiest person to get along with, says Tyrus. I don't know. 
But the speculation also was that maybe he seems easygoing in his own mind because people actually are terrified of him because he is an absolutely enormous mountain of a human being, right? So people don't pick fights with him because it would be very dumb for them to do that. In any case, Greg refused to take the survey. And he said he just knows. He's like, I'm an awful person. I would have a terrible score on this thing. Cat was second highest, then Charles Payne, then me, then, again, allegedly, Tyrus. So I'm a 31, and of the categories where you might be problematic or difficult, here they are, callousness, risk-taking, dominance, manipulativeness, suspicion, aggression, and grandiosity. I was least difficult in the aggression category. I'm a very non-aggressive person. And I was most problematic in the realm of grandiosity, which I think, and I saw, I wasn't like off the charts or anything, but I was apparently a bit grandiose. But in fairness, I am an on-air personality in media. I think we all are a little bit enamored of ourselves more than we should be. I think that sort of comes with the territory here. You just got to keep it in check and be, uh, keep it real. Self-awareness is always a good thing. So that was my score, 31. Wyatt, you took this test. I am going to guess that you were even easier to get along with. If I had to guess, I could be wrong. What was your score? I'm I'm in, like embarrassed now. I don't even know what I should say. But I just took it, and it's I'm a 45. Whoa. Now, would you have gotten a 45 a month ago before the war? <laughs> Has the war changed you? As War Wyatt, it I, honestly it could have. I I mean I think you guys would probably say that, but I think a forty five. What I'm, was your biggest uh, your biggest flaw category? Um, I guess grandiosity. If that makes sense, it could be not risk taking. Risk taking is my absolute lowest. <laughs> that it's, is it's small. That checks out. That checks out. Okay, wow. Okay, so Wyatt's a forty five. I'm a thirty one. Dan. I was surprised at mine. Mine's a somewhat difficult person to get along with at huh. 43%. Ooh, 43 and a half. But still easier than Wyatt. That's according, true. And again, this is science, ladies and gentlemen. There, It's flawless. There's no disputing this. You're at 43. What was your most difficult category and what was your best, quote, category? Highest category was aggression, which I'm a pretty even keel person, no, so I don't agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I don't that. get that. Kind of like a gentle giant with a deep yeah. voice. When I have to be, I guess it, it comes there out. Must have, you must have answered some questions in yeah. an aggressive way, though. I might have clicked the button harder than others. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, callousness was my lowest one. Okay. So you're empathetic. Yeah. Yes. Thoughtful, but aggressive. I agree with that. All right. Christine, I know you were not wishing to participate today, but that ship has sailed. Hmm. Um, how'd you do on this one? How'd you do on the old test? Actually, surprisingly, very well. 40%. I'm a pretty 40. easygoing person. So you you are second only to me mm. in the easygoing category and here. I'm sorry. You don't believe me, do you? I, I Well, no, I believe that that is what you believe about yourself. <laughs> I that's, do it. That's what I believe. I also am now questioning the science, and I'm wondering, has the science changed? Because the idea that you are easier to get along with than Dan or, or Wyatt, I don't know, although— I will say this, you are very charming and fun, and when people meet you, they like you. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, that producer of yours is a firecracker. She's fun. 
That is true. And the question isn't, are you easy to work with? The question is, are you easy to get along with? Those are not necessarily the same thing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's back it up a little bit then. I'm difficult to work with? I'm not saying that. And in fairness, if we were to do the airing of grievances right now, there's not nearly enough time because we're out of time. I mean, we would need – I mean, Bill Barr I had for a full hour. We would need a Festivus show where we would do all the grievances for three hours here. And then maybe you could, you know, make a few constructive adjustments. No, I – in all seriousness, I think we're a very easy group to get along with. I do. I also I have to say, though, they're right because my highest score was an aggression. Mm. And that makes sense. Yeah, the way you go after guests. And if they don't email you back within four minutes. Guest, people, text message disagrees with me. And a phone number. We were actually recounting how you were calling someone repeatedly in a hospital bed. Yeah, the ICU. That was a thing that you did once. But I got him. So uh, <laughs> you did. See? So aggression is number one. Mm. And then what's your best category? Oh, uh, callousness. Okay. Yeah, I think I think. That's fair. I'm also a huge people pleaser. I like to, like, do things for people and make their lives, you know, easier. Yes, often, yes. <laughs> um, can we get Bobby? We have Bobby on the line. No, just okay. kidding. <laughs> Excluding Bobby. Uh, we got to run. But this was fun. And I now I'm questioning, was I too easy on myself? Being 31, being nine whole points easier than anyone else on this team? I don't know. Then again, I don't think I have a reputation of being a difficult person in general. So you know what? I'm going to go with it. It makes me feel good. I'm going to go with it. On Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern with the lady herself back here tomorrow, but from D.C. on the radio. It's the Guy Benson Show. Have a fantastic evening. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.